Therefore, my beloved, as you have always obeyed, so now, not only as in my presence, but much more in my absence, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling, for it is God who works in you, both to will and to work for his good pleasure. Do all things without grumbling or questioning, that you may be blameless and innocent, children of God, without blemish in the midst of a crooked and twisted generation, among whom you shine as lights in the world, holding fast to the word of life, so that in the day of Christ, I may be proud that I did not run in vain or labor in vain. Even if I am to be poured out as a drink offering upon the sacrificial offering of your faith, I am glad and rejoice with you all. Likewise, you also should be glad and rejoice with me. A number of years ago, I was reintroduced to the joys of supporting a football team. My previous experience had been Norwich City, Plymouth Argyle, and once upon a time in the very distant past, Bournemouth. But this occasion was Woking Town, which is a semi-professional team in the National League, also known as the Cardinals or the Cards, whose players earn in the region of £500 per match. They're also a team where most unusually you change ends at half time. I don't mean the players change ends, that's quite normal, but the supporters change ends. And the primary purpose of changing ends, I discover, is to abuse the hapless opposition goalkeeper. <laughs> this lifetime experience reminded me of a, a song which you may well know. The lyrics were not particularly complex. They were memorable, but even so, it needed a cheerleader for each line as it went along. Everywhere we go, oh, people want to know, oh, who we are, where we come from, and uh, something else, which I forgot. <laughs> so this issue of identity, you know, it's right at the heart of so much of modern life, isn't it? About who am I? But it's also been right at the heart of this little letter to the Philippians. And the way Paul addresses the issue of identity is to get us to think about our minds or our soul. Those two words are used pretty much interchangeably in the letter. And the word for the mind occurs ten times in four chapters, and soul also is regular. And so it's worth pausing and thinking about what the Bible writer means when he talks about our mind. We would think, oh, intellect, that's not quite right. No, the mind expresses not merely an activity of the intellect, but also a movement of the will, is the way one person puts it. It's a mental attitude and thus the basic aim, direction, and orientation of behavior. Somebody else describes our mind like this, as from a biblical perspective. The mind or soul points to what we feel about things, how we react to them, raises the question of what things we consider valuable, what we can consider to be a worthwhile goal in life, our mind. I was talking about this a number of years ago. There was a nine-year-old in the room, and when I finished speaking about it, I don't always talk to nine-year-olds about this sort of thing, but we were chatting about it, and the nine-year-old said, oh, so you mean it's what we are on the inside? I thought, that captures it. Everywhere we go, people want to know who we are, where we come from, we are. 
And Paul's point in this letter is that the Christian man or woman has been given a new what we are on the inside. Our identity has changed. The idea of self is altogether different. We're no longer minded this way. We're minded that way now. And he expresses the idea in terms of citizenship, and he says we are now citizens of heaven. We belong somewhere else. A new mind has been planted within us. There's been, if you like, a supernatural recreation of what we are on the inside. And any Christian will be able to recognize that. And if you look across the page to chapter 1 and verse 27, you can see that's what he's talking about. Only let, literally, your citizenly conduct be worthy of the gospel of Jesus Christ, so that whether I come and see you or an absent, I may hear of you that you are standing firm in one spirit with one mind. You see it again in verse 2 of chapter 2. Complete my joy by being of the same mind, being in full accord and of one mind. And then verse 5, have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus. Now, that's so interesting, isn't it? He doesn't say which ought to be yours. uh, Or he doesn't say, you know, try hard to have this mind. He says, this mind is yours if you belong to Jesus. Now have it. And it leaves us then asking the question, well, what does this, what we are on the inside, this whole new creation that has taken place within you, if you call yourself Christian, what does this new creation look like as it's worked out? And what Paul does is absolutely brilliant. He takes us to the chief citizen of heaven, the Lord Jesus Christ. And you see from verse 6 of chapter 2, who literally since he was in the form of God, being God, he didn't consider equality God a thing to be grasped and exploited for his own ends, but made himself nothing and emptied himself into the form of a slave, becoming obedient to even death on the cross. And therefore God highly exalted Jesus as the chief citizen of heaven, the King of kings and the Lord of lords, because he has shown us above any, anybody else a clear picture of what the heavenly mindset is actually like. This is what heaven values, this sacrificial, selfless service. And if you belong to Jesus Christ, well, it's ours. We have it. It's been created within us. We're new creatures. And now Paul goes on in this next really central part of the letter to tell us, okay, so, you know, what are we to do with this? And and you can see uh, today three basic areas. And really, we could spend, you know, 45 minutes on each one. We're not going to, don't panic. But really, there's seven verses. We could be here for the next three or four hours talking about them. They're packed full. And first of all, he talks about the work to be done. Then he goes on to talk about the witness to be shown And then he finishes with the worship to be enjoyed. And you need, if you've got your sheet there, to change that um, to the worship to be enjoyed, the work to be done. Well, there are four things to note in verses 12 through 13. What, when, how, and why. What? The work 
If you look at it in verse 12, therefore, my beloved, as you've always obeyed, so now not only as in my presence, but much more in my absence, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. Now, notice what Paul doesn't say. He doesn't say work for your own salvation. No, you've already got salvation. The mind has been changed. You're a heavenly citizen. We belong already. Now work it out. And it's an intensified form of work. Sweat over it. Labor out. When and where? So now, not only as in my presence, but much more in my absence. That is, both when Paul is there and watching and when Paul is not there and has gone. He has his trial in mind and his potential death. Because the mind of the eternal and ever-present divine God is now in us, because God is eternally present wherever we go, so we are to work out our salvation. It stands to reason wherever we find ourselves. There's no corner where we're not working out our salvation. There's no neutral zone where we find we're not citizens of heaven. We're not chameleons. You know, I work out my salvation for one hour a week in church or a weekend away or on a Tuesday, Wednesday or Thursday night, but actually elsewhere, well, I'm not working out my salvation. No, work out your salvation, whether I'm present, much more when I'm absent, just work it out. How? With fear and trembling. Now, that's striking. It could make some of us anxious and insecure, and that's not Paul's intent at all. In the Old Testament, when God appeared before his people, there was genuine fear because to face God in person without confirmation that I am forgiven is terrifying. That's why people are so frightened of death. But now with a knowledge of God as Father, knowing that I'm a citizen of heaven, I belong. I'm his. I have this new mind. I'm in, as it were. Well, the fear and trembling, I take it it's more of a sense of awe, privilege, responsibility. Do you know that woman, Penny Mordaunt? You probably don't know Penny Mordaunt, but there she was. If you watched the big show a couple of weeks ago, you know, with that lightsaber or whatever she was carrying, you know, I can't believe it was the real thing, you know. But anyway, there she was. And people talk about that sense of privilege and honor. But hold on a second. The King of Kings and Lord of Lords, God himself, has made us citizens of his eternal and everlasting kingdom. So work out your salvation with fear and trembling, sense of high calling, honor. Why? Verse 13. For it is God who works within you, both to will and to work for his good pleasure. Notice here, it is him who's at work within us. And so he initiates the good work. Wherever we are, he is at work within us. Wherever we go, he dwells in all his purity and holiness inside us. The creator of the universe now dwells within, and he is at work within us to will 
to cause us, to prompt us, to move us, to do his will, and then to work. He enables, he strengthens, he gives the courage to do what he has prompted us to do. This ties so tightly with the whole of Paul's letter to date. You remember the prayer of chapter 1, verse 11, where Paul prays for a great harvest of righteousness from every believer. You think of the grain trailer coming into the store, and here is the believer on the day of Christ Jesus with a great load of righteous good works, and work out your salvation with fear and trembling, because God is at work within you to will and to work. His good purpose Do it with fear and trembling, whether somebody's watching, whether somebody isn't. It's a lifelong project for me to live as Christ, to die as gain. So am I spending my days in a schoolroom or a university lecture room or a company boardroom? Well, God is at work within me to will and to work his good pleasure, initiating new ideas for gospel ministry and gospel living. Work it out with fear and trembling. Am I living in a one-bed flat in Clapham or a house share in Lewisham or student accommodation in Soho or a penthouse in Pimlico? Work out your salvation with fear and trembling. It's a high calling. Here in London on a short-term visa or intending to stay at St. Helens for a lifetime of service. Traveling in the week on important business, sent abroad, posted, as I have obeyed, so I am to continue to obey. And here's one. You know, is the person from whom I learned the Christian faith still around? Have they moved away, passed away, fallen away? Not only in my presence, but also in my absence. Work out your salvation with fear and trembling. And it's really important we get to understand the purpose of Jesus' selfless service. He is the chief citizen of heaven. He's the king of kings. Why did he come in the form of a slave, being obedient to death, even death on the cross? Oh, so that he could win men and women to follow the Lord Jesus to the glory of God for eternity. What then is God's good purpose that he is working within us to will and to work? Oh, that we make the Christian gospel known wherever we find ourselves. And so the point of the sacrificial service of the Lord Jesus is a purposeful sacrifice. He didn't just come and die on the cross saying, oh, look how much I love you with no purpose. That would be meaningless as if I was to go and lie at the door of of St. Helens and you would all walk over me as you go out and I'd say, I love you, I serve you. You'd say, well, you're an idiot. What's the point of that? Jesus' death on the cross was purposeful for the faith of the gospel. Now work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. And so each of us individually, all of us together, we're to be working out our salvation, looking to the will of God in each situation and the work of God in every setting. How can I radiate the good news of the gospel of Jesus Christ? How can I live for him? How can I make him known? How can I declare him 
What fruit of righteousness? And I guess I could give any number of examples of people who have done that. I'm not particularly sure that would be helpful. Paul gives two very specific examples next week, so make sure you come for them. He cites himself by way of example this week. But the point is not that we are to copy the carbon copy of the Apostle Paul or Epaphroditus next week or Timothy, but rather that each of us is to work out our salvation. And so those words work out your own salvation. They're really important. We're not kind of automata. Rather, God has put us in different situations with different family settings, different connections, different friendship groups, different temperaments and opportunities. Now work out your salvation with fear and trembling wherever we find ourselves. Well, in verses 14 through 15, Paul moves from the work to be done to the witness to be shown. And really in these verses, there are three very, very powerful images. That of children, stars, and the word of life. Let me read them for us. Do all things without grumbling or questioning that you may be blameless and innocent children of God without blemish in the midst of a crooked and twisted generation among whom you shine as lights in the world, holding fast to the word of life so that in the day of Christ I might be proud that I did not run in vain or labor in vain. Children. The verses are loaded with Old Testament allusion. As a rule, I'm quite cautious about claiming Old Testament allusion unless the author specifically indicates that he intends us to go there. Uh, The speech language of the first century Christian was so loaded with Old Testament idiom, how are we to know for sure that he's not just using the kind of language he uses? Well, in this case, what I've done is to print out for you Deuteronomy 32 verse 5 alongside Philippians 2 verse 14 and 15. And you can see Deuteronomy 32, they have dealt corruptly with him. They are no longer his children because they are blemished. They are a crooked and twisted generation. Philippians 2, do all things without grumbling or questioning that you may be blameless and innocent children of God without blemish in the midst of a crooked and twisted generation. The point is that the people of Israel back in the Old Testament consistently failed with their mindset. And the thing above everything else which failed them was their grumbling and their constant carping at God. Now, they grumbled against Moses, their leader, and this could be the Apostle Paul urging the Philippians not to be a pain in the neck to those who lead their churches. And a number of church leaders take it like that. It's a very good way of silencing opposition, actually. But uh, I'm not entirely sure that that is what Paul has in mind. Most of all, when the Israelites grumbled against Moses, they were really grumbling against God. When they looked up and saw the enemy, they grumbled. When they didn't have enough water, they grumbled. When they thought they weren't getting enough food, they grumbled. When they considered the difficulty of getting into the promised land, they questioned 
When God gave them the commandments, they questioned. They grumbled and questioned. They really were a bunch of ungrateful whingers. Rather than trust God in the specific life circumstances and individual personal scenarios that they found themselves in, they complained against God and grumbled against God and questioned God's good purpose. And I think this has to be what Paul is thinking about with regards to the Philippians. Remember, he's already said to them, it has been graced to you that you should not only believe in Jesus, but also suffer for his sake. And so is it that, having started so well in the Christian faith, now they find themselves, having spoken openly and clearly, standing side by side for the faith of the gospel, openly speaking of Christ, now they find themselves under opposition, just as Paul had done when he spoke openly of Jesus Christ, and they're getting a bit of adverse publicity, a bit of you know, contrary winds, as it were, against them. Things haven't turned out the way they would have liked them to turn out, and, oh, well, mutter, 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 mutter against God. Question, 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 God. Maybe that dream for the perfect home or the perfect retirement or the perfect partner or the perfect income or the perfect employment hadn't quite come true. Mutter, 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 mutter. It may well be that obeying not only in my absence but also much more in my presence and working out salvation has exposed them to dangers or downturns or disciplines that they would not otherwise have had. It may be that as they look across at their peers or their siblings or their acquaintances in other churches or fellow believers in the same church, you know, their situation, it just wasn't quite what they'd hoped it might be. Question, 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 grumble, grumble. So easy, isn't it? to be grumbling and complaining against God and to have the mindset of Christ. Think of him who made himself nothing, joyfully, because sacrificial service is what is so precious in heaven and that the witness is compromised by dissatisfied, discontented, whinging. Well, instead the image is of a blazing star. I love this image because, um, I mean, it's probably from Daniel. There are allusions to Isaiah. The trouble is Isaiah's theology is so rich you can find allusions to Isaiah under every pebble of the New Testament. You know, maybe it's about that, but linguistically it's closer to Daniel. And Daniel had this picture of the final day, resurrection day, when God would raise up his own people for eternity. And it seems that Paul is suggesting that now with the mindset of Christ planted within us, that day in one sense has begun to come already in the believer. 
And so that as, as we live out our lives and work out our salvation in selfless, sacrificial service, wherever God has put, put us, not grumbling and complaining against God as we face the hostility of this crooked and perverse world, as, as we live that out, so we are, as we're blazing like a radiant star, the future reality of the kingdom of heaven. You imagine that in your workplace, dark place, crooked and twisted as it is. And the image of the starlit nights. So when, when were you last? Or some of you are just down in the country just this weekend. Did you go outside? Clear start sky, no house for miles around. You can see, it's almost as if you see every single star that is visible to the human eye. And you say to yourself, well, how could that ever be for me? How could I ever sustain that in this dark world? And Paul gives you the answer there in verse 16, holding fast to the gospel, to the word of life. And the word hold fast, it could be hold on to, it could be hold out, and I think it's probably a bit of both. I want to be a cakeist at this moment, that is to have my cake and eat it. I think when the New Testament is kind of, you know, it could be one, it could be the other, often it's been deliberately chosen like that. So as we hold on to the gospel, well, then we'll be reminded to stop being a whinging, carping so-and-so and be thankful to God for all that he's given us. And as we hold on to the gospel, so we will want to hold out the gospel. And as we hold out the gospel, so we will blaze like a light shining in this dark world and be exactly what Daniel anticipated, and Isaiah, by the way, and Jesus spoke about in the Sermon on the Mount. And so do all things without grumbling or questioning. Have you got into a habit of just slightly whinging about your personal life circumstances? I mean, I have done in the past. This has been very good for me this week. Living in London, don't particularly enjoy London as a place, you know. Oh, you know, you can just become a bit of a whinger. Oh, things haven't worked out relationally the way I would have liked them to work out. Oh, things haven't worked out employment-wise. Oh, those Christians over there seem to have so much better time than me. Whatever it happens to be. Do all things without grumbling or questioning that you may be blameless and innocent. Children of God, not like the wilderness generation. Children of God without blemish in the midst of a crooked and twisted generation among whom you shine as stars in the world as you hold fast to and hold out the word of life so that when Jesus returns, I may be proud that I didn't run or labor in vain. There's work to be done. There's witness to be shown. And then I think, I mean, I wish I'd allowed more time for this. Really, another 45 minutes is needed. You're not going to get it for at best. But here we go. There is worship to be enjoyed. Now, if your neighbor is kind of drifting, you know, stick a pin in them or something, Verse 17, even if I am to be poured out as a drink offering upon the sacrificial offering of your faith, I am glad and rejoice with you all. Likewise, you also should be glad and rejoice with me. Could you have written it like that? Could, would you have written it like that? Because if we wouldn't, 
then we haven't understood the mindset of heaven. Even if I am to be poured out on the sacrificial offering of your faith, I am glad and I rejoice. And you should be glad and rejoice with me. He uses the word sacrifice. Sacrifice normally speaks of a one-off event. You present a dead animal. That's a one-off thing. It happens and then it's done. And he uses the word of priestly service. Now, the priests were a unique tribe. Not everybody. But he uses the word sacrifice as if to speak of the whole of our life. And he uses the word priest to speak of every single one of us. And his expectation is that the whole of our life now, we have the mindset of heaven, is a sacrificial self-giving in response to what God has done for us. Every single one of us. So that even if our sacrificial self-giving results in our death, our downward spiral as it did for Jesus. We will be full of joy. Why would we be full of joy? Because that is what heaven counts as precious. That is what God is like. Selfless service. Sacrifice for the sake of others so that they might come to know the Lord Jesus Christ. And so we're left, I hope, and I hope we're going to take this very seriously afterwards. We're left saying, okay, so how am I working out my salvation? I hope we're going to talk about that over something to eat in just a few minutes. You know, how are we working out us? In in my particular situation, with my gifts, my life opportunities, the education I happen to be given, the resources at my disposal, the place where I'm at work, how am I going to work it out for the glory of God, his good purposes? What projects are you engaged in with all of your life? How am I shining like a star? Is there an attitude to correct? Have I just begun, sorry, begun to be a grumbler? And and then, am I rejoicing at the prospect if Jesus doesn't return? And and I'll say another 60 years, you know, obviously not, but, uh, you know, for for some of you guys, of another 60 years of sacrificial, 24-7, 360 degrees, selfless worship, all of life. Because that's the mindset of heaven. And boy, is that different to the the idea of service that we see knocking around and has become so popular. I mean, it's wonderful that service is, is held high. But this is... You know, this is not service kind of done for three hours on a Wednesday night as I, you know, come out and then return. Done on my terms. <laughs> Comfortably because I've decided that's when I'm going to do it. No, this is 24-7. This is 80 years. This is sacrificial. This is all of life's plans at his disposal. That's the mindset of heaven.
Let's pray together. Thank you, our Father, that in Christ you have given us citizenship of your heavenly kingdom. And in Christ you have planted within every single one of us who trust in Jesus a new mind. And we pray that what we are on the inside, what you have created, might work out for every single one of us to your good purposes. In Jesus' name, amen.